answer. Now, we've got four areas. One, two, three, four areas here. Ben and Amanda, please come and help me here just very quickly. As a refresher, this last three Sundays, if you haven't been able to be here for whatever reason, um, this is going to be a good refresher for you of where we've come from to where we are today. So the first question is, for this area here, you get two questions each area. The first question for this area here, first hand up, name the current series that we are in. Oh, we see that hand. Yell it out. Game on. on. Fantastic. That is it. It signals to the team. It signals to the team that we are accepting a challenge. It's kind of like that huddle that we come at the start of our year to discuss the gameplay and the plan, that each player we are accepting our assigned role. And so game time, we say game on. That's the first question. Let's go to this area here. Three goals. Three goals as a church we are embarking on. What are the three goals? Growing. Uh, 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 Hands, hands up. Hands up. Who we got? Who we got? Joel. Growing hope, invitations, and mercy. Growing hope because Jesus is the ultimate hope for every human life. A thousand stories of hope and transformation. Invitations to bring, um, we're going to bring clarity on what it means to be radically invitational. Andrew Fair, uh, uh, chairman of Elders, he's going to come and share a little bit later on about that. And uh, mercy, it's about helping others get spiritually right with God. You guys are doing really well. Let's go to this area right here in front of me. The greatest threat I mentioned in week one, the greatest threat to our future, can anyone remember hands up. Greatest threat to our future, Bianca at the front here. Yell it out. Comfort. Comfort. The greatest threat to our future as a church is comfort. We're going to talk about that in just a moment. Good on you, Bianca. Congrats. Um, Let's go to the next uh, question over here, this area over here. Uh, We have six key values. Six key values. Um, What is our number one, the first key value? We got a hand, Christy. Powerful prayer. She better know that she's one of our elders. <laughs> Fantastic. Come back. Okay, one more question each. We're doing well. We're doing well. Okay, we have a mission statement. We also have a vision statement. I'd like this area first hand up to name our mission statement. Jesus-centered, others-focused together. Is that right? Together in community? Yeah, yeah. That is fantastic. Oh. Are you cheating? Ah, oh, no. <laughs> Let's go to the next one. Okay, this area here. Mission statement. As we go about being Jesus-centered, others-focused, together in community, we believe as a church we'll achieve our vision of being a hand-up, no staff, please. No, no, no. You guys have been you guys have been here too long. We got one. Chris, yell it out. Oh, 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 oh. I don't know if that was right, was it? Not quite. Not quite. Give him a chocolate anyway. Uh, can we can we allow Craig to answer this one? <laughs> yell it out, Craig. Fantastic. Craig got that one. Craig got that one. Good on you, Craig. <laughs> and uh, are we coming over to this one? Is that right? Okay. We're over here. Oh, you're putting your hand up already. No, 
<laughs> He's cheating. All right. Um, six key values. Uh, powerful prayer was the first one. Our second key value is, second key value. Zach, do you, you got it? Fantastic. Yell. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Passionate pursuit of lost people. We'll also talk about that. Now, for bonus points over this area, I'm sorry about this. I don't expect you to know this unless you've got a bookmark there in front of you. What's the new series that we're going to bring next Sunday? Feel free to have a look at your bookmarks. We've got a back, yeah. Yell it out. What's it called? Very good. Let's put it up. Have we got it up? There we go. This is coming next Sunday. All through the month of March, we're going to be talking to you about Stronger. (laughs) The battle for your mind. Anyone struggle with overthinking? Yeah. You need to be here. You need to be here uh, next Sunday. Oh, in fact, the next four Sundays, in fact. Hey, let's get into this. Hey, let me just go back to that chat we just quickly had about comfort. There's something about comfort that we really like, isn't it? You know, the comfort of a chair, the comfort of close friends, close family, the comforts um, of doing life, um, uh, whether or not we choose to stay in that comfort zone or move out of our comfort zone, there's something about comfort. It's so easy in life, especially when it comes to relationships, isn't it? That we surround ourselves with people who like us and we surround ourselves with people who are like us. It's quite normal. Um, The values in which we have and share in common, the virtues in which we have, the way we look maybe even, our educational background, it's natural, it's normal to have that sense of comfort and surround ourselves with people who like us and are like us. You know, Jesus brought a lot of challenges uh, in his ministry as he was walking amongst us all those years ago. And uh, he would challenge um, us and he would call us to maintain relationships with those who maybe make us feel a little uncomfortable. Maybe those who have a different view on life to what we have. In fact, over and over, Jesus encountered people who were different to him and he challenges our boundaries that we often so put up in our lives. And so today, we're going to talk about how do we become the kind of people that are opening up our lives to those different to ourselves, showing kindness, and the third goal, growing mercy. Very good. Can we disagree with someone else and still sit at the same table together because it's not without challenge I'll be put I'll be the first to put my hand up and it's not an easy thing to do but Jesus's words as we're about to unfold challenges you and I to do okay a bible trivial am I on have I gone I've gone oh Good? Back on? I thought something went there. Uh, a Bible trivial pursuit just for a moment. Help me, help me answer this question. Who did Jesus get most frustrated with? You're right. Can you say that a little louder? The religious people, the teachers of the law, the rulers of the synagogue, the leaders of the religious formalities, often called the Pharisees. The Pharisees. Jesus addressed this group of people throughout the Gospels. Matthew 9, Matthew 23... I'll refer to in a moment, and Luke 15, which we'll focus on here in just a few moments. We're going to take a look at what so frustrated Jesus and what 
does he want us to learn from these passages? First of all, Matthew 23. I don't have it on the screen here this morning. This is just something that came to me this last 24 hours or so, so please forgive me. And thanks for those who are doing computer. These are part of my notes, but just very quickly. Matthew 23, seven times I counted, seven times. Jesus says to the religious leaders, seven times, woe to you, woe to you, woe to you, seven times. He calls them hypocrites. He calls them snakes. He calls them a brood of very good. A brood of vipers. This is pretty strong language from Jesus, our Lord and our Savior, as he walked among us, as he was addressing the religious people of the day. He was addressing them in this way in Matthew 23 because they shut the door of the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. These religious people of the day were the door holders, yet they would slam the door in people's faces and Jesus saw this and because he saw this he addressed this within their lives what was it that drove these people these religious people to hypocrisy what was it that drove their I'm going to do one thing but I am going to say another thing I'm going to live another kind of life well in Matthew 23 verse 23 Jesus says this, that, sorry, this is not on the screen, this is just fresh, that you have neglected what really matters. He's addressing the religious people, the Pharisees. You have, you have neglected justice, you have neglected mercy, and you have neglected faithfulness. You have forgotten, he is saying, what really, really matters. Matthew 9, let's go back a few chapters. Matthew 9, verse 13, he says, I, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. What is he talking about when he says that he lived a sacrificial life? But he says to them, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. He's saying, I will not let go of mercy at the expense. I will not let go of sacrifice at the expense of mercy. Let me get that right. This is fresh. He would not let go of mercy. And so he's addressing this within the people's lives. He's saying that I desire mercy, not sacrifice, for I have not come to call the righteous, but I've come to call sinners. And so at Jesus' table, he sits with sinners. The teachers of the law, because of this, they mock him. And as you think who Jesus was around more, who Jesus himself liked more, who he was most comfortable around more, it was that of sinners. That's good news, right? That is good news. And the Pharisees didn't like this. Why? Because they were constantly measuring themselves against other people. That self-righteousness would often come up in their lives, that sense that I'm better than you. And this is dangerous because mercy comes to those who need it. And if you are a self-righteous person, you in fact, you don't need mercy. And so Jesus is saying, you can't pass on what you don't possess. You can't extend what you haven't experienced. And so because of this, today, we're going to talk about these two things. First of all, learning about how to become more merciful. And secondly, Come to the understanding of how much mercy has been given to you and to me. Because as soon as we lose our view of mercy, we lose how we treat other people. Jesus desires mercy, not sacrifice. 
So Luke chapter 15 is our text today. Luke chapter 15, and uh, Jesus uh, shares three stories, three parables, kind of three in one. What's a parable? A parable is an illustration that teaches practical principles for living. You see, in the Greek, para means alongside, balo means to throw. And so Jesus, he would um, take a modern day story and he would throw alongside of it this truth that people would understand. It was uh, easy to visualize and very easy to remember. He would often tell stories. People would then go away and to reflect and to think on what he would say. So Jesus says these three stories in Luke chapter 15. First story is this, that this shepherd has 100 sheep. This shepherd Uh, The sheep wanders off and the shepherd gets concerned about his lost sheep. He has a hundred sheep and he goes and looks for it. And so he searches high and low and he finds this sheep. This text, the text says that joyfully he takes that sheep back to the others. And because of that, he calls his friends. They come over, they throw a party, they celebrate that the wandering sheep is now found and brought back to the fold. That's the first story. The second story is that of a woman who has 10 silver coins. This is very valuable to her. In fact, each coin was incredibly valuable to her. It may be all that she had, yet she loses one coin. She sweeps the entire house. She lights the lamp, hoping to find this coin. Long story, catch up. She finds the coin. She calls her friends. They put on a party and they celebrate that which was lost is now found. That's the second story, the woman and the lost coin. The third story is that of a man. This man who has two boys. One is a little rebellious and he asks for his inheritance early and when he gets it, he heads off to a distant country, yet he blows all of his inheritance. And he gets so low that he gets a job feeding pigs and he's reminded of what's happening at home, that in fact the servants are being treated better than what he's being treated. And so he hits rock bottom. And because of that rock bottom, he humbles himself. And we pick this up in Luke chapter 15, verse 20, where it says, So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with, say this word with me, compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, this is pretty strong, and kissed him. The the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and they're getting ready for a party here. Let's have a feast and celebrate for this son of mine was dead and he's alive. Again, he was lost and he's found. So they began to say this word with me celebrate they partied can I ask you a question are these three stories in Luke chapter 15 totally random well do they have a kind of separate meaning are they told together for a particular reason or they're kind of that Jesus combined triple punch (laughs) last question for us to consider why did Jesus in the first place tell these three stories. I think we can actually find the answer in the first two verses that I haven't even read yet. Check this out. Luke chapter 15, first two verses says this. Now, the tax collectors, who? The tax collectors and who? The sinners. Tax collectors and sinners. 
were all gathering around to hear Jesus. That would uh, be quite frequent. That would happen quite often. They were fascinated by what Jesus had to say. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man, this man welcomes sinners and, and eats with them. Yes, two things. What does Jesus do with sinners? He welcomes them and he eats with them. I don't know if you know anything about history. In fact, history doesn't matter. It still happens today. If you were having a meal with Jordanians, you would spend three hours with them, sitting with them. Jesus would spend time with them. This was a big deal back in those days, especially. And Jesus was being watched. Another question for us here this morning. What bothered Jesus so much that he decided to tell not one story, not two stories, but three stories back to back. Uh, maybe if I could help, maybe try to attempt to answer that. The first thing I would really believe he, he did this was to help bring truth to what was going on. He was sharing truth. In fact, can I go a little further? I think he was penetrating the ignorance and arrogance of the hearts of people who did not understand the heart of God. And so... The disrespect, the disapproval that these religious people, the Pharisees, had built up in their hearts for anyone less religious, anyone less spiritual, or a little different from themselves. This, in fact, bothered Jesus quite, uh, quite a bit. The Pharisees, let's think about their attitude as they came and as they observed, as they kind of did their huddle around what they were observing about Jesus' life. Well, they had the kind of attitude, well, we, we are the ones. We are God's chosen people. We are the ones who live by his rule. We stay in his good books. These sinners that are gathered around Jesus, they don't care about the Father. They don't attend worship gatherings. They don't study God's word. They don't say, they say bad words. They have different beliefs to ours. We can't stand them. And we know for absolute sure that the perfect righteous God in heaven cannot stand them either. That was their attitudes. And that's where they were coming from. And so they came up with the conclusion that if Jesus was the son of God, that Jesus was God in the flesh, that he also wouldn't be able to stand these sinners either because God hates them and we hate them and so Jesus should also hate them as well. Hmm. Don't forget, let's go back. Not only does Jesus tolerate them, what does Scripture say? He welcomes them and he eats with them. In fact, he is fond of these people. I've got a question, another question, is that all right? I don't have all the answers, by the way. <laughs> Can we just put this next question up on the screen? Who is it you are absolutely sure of that God can't stand? A mentor of mine passed away this week. In fact, he was promoted to glory. His name was Billy. You may have heard of him. Billy Graham. A mentor. You can be mentored from a distance, right? <laughs> he used to quote John 3.16 all the time. 
And maybe you're here this morning to hear this word. Could you picture him preaching this? Close your eyes for a moment. John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whosoever believes in him will not perish but have have a lasting life. You can open your eyes. For God so loved, so loved, not just loved, but so loved the world. Back to why Jesus told three stories. You remember? He was responding to the Pharisees, the religious people of the day, because of the disrespect, their disapproval of people who are less spiritual, who are different, and he leaves it up to them. Yes, he could have shirt-fronted them, but he leaves it up to them to figure out as to why he told them these three stories and as we look into these three stories there's just a couple of common themes the first common theme is that something of value goes missing you remember the sheep the coin and the son the sheep was what one of a hundred the coin was one of ten the son was two of uh, was uh, son of one of two sons and so what Jesus is doing as he teaches as he speaks out he's drawing people in he's building his story, the tension in which he is trying to bring to these stories, to bring them into these stories. That which is missing in these three stories, he's saying, really, really matters. It really, really matters to somebody. Could you imagine later on, just if we could, just imagine just for a moment where Jesus is gone and they're they're moved on and um, the campfire, around the campfire and the Pharisees having this conversation, they're singing Kumbaya, yeah? And uh, they're considering these three stories that Jesus has told. And he draws, uh, he draws them in in these three stories. And, and they have this kind of aha moment that kind of that which is missing, that which is missing in these three stories, the, the, these three stories really, really matters. That those sin-infested misfits that stood around listening to Jesus represented something of value to someone in heaven. Is that what Jesus is saying? Is that what he's really saying? That any human being missing from God's family who has wandered away lost still has enormous value to God and no matter how they're living, they really, really matter to him. You know what? This is what I figured out. And I hope you get my heart when I say this, that it's only when this becomes absolutely clear to you, you actually lose your moral prejudice to hate or to judge anyone. You know what these three stories actually reveal? I think they reveal a couple of things. Firstly, I think we've already discussed that, that all people matter to God. And because all people matter to God, no matter how they're living, no matter what they're saying, they need to matter to me, to us. (laughs) I think this story also reveals that God's trying to put his heart in each of us that someone who will love that which is lost. I think the second common theme as we move on is that something of value deserves an all-out search. The shepherd, what does he leave? He leaves the, the 99 in search to rescue the one. The woman, she sweeps the house possibly a hundred times over to find that lost coin. The father searched every single day to see that son return. I think the text is suggesting that God looks at people all over the planet, even if they're running away from him, that they are enough value to him and he's going to search for them. Luke 19 verse 10 would put it this way. For the son of man, Jesus, that's referring to there, For Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. 
Jesus is on a search and rescue mission. And this text is saying that Jesus was trying to get through, that the Father is on an all-out search, driven by love, trying to rescue each and every one. And if you have been rescued, if you have been rescued, this should blow your mind and life an absolute part. It should make you want to draw and fill you with that sense of adoration and worship and should motivate you to become the kind of person who joins God's search team where you say and declare, game on, game on, as he goes about trying to seek and save that which is lost. However, it hurts me to say, it hurts me to say among such a fine group of people that maybe for some of us, maybe for some of us, we've lost the wonder of it all. Maybe we've left the rescue team. Maybe we're not looking for people anymore. You see, if you stay out of that rescue mission long enough, you can fall into the trap of becoming, of becoming judgmental. And when you become judgmental, you start to condemn. You start to condemn and bring down that which matters to God the most. And he loves people. And that's what the Pharisees did, didn't they? They justified their hate. They justified it. Can I say over you this morning, don't let that happen to you. Don't let that be you. Don't fall into that pit. The third common theme as we move our way into a time of communion is this, that uh, rescues brings, rescue brings rejoicing. Rescue brings rejoicing. What motivates a shepherd to throw a party over one sheep? What motivates a woman to celebrate one coin it was in a house probably six feet from, away from her. But she'd celebrate that. And I think we understand the father and the son situation and thought he was dead and now is alive. I think we probably understand that. Luke 15, 10 would say this, that I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the, angel of, uh, in the, of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. It's as if Jesus is asking, do you have the heart of the shepherd? Do you have the heart of the woman? Do you have the heart of the father? It's as if Jesus is asking, are you merciful? Are you on the search team? And does this bring rejoicing to your heart? As we come to a time of communion these next few moments, I'll invite Andrew to come up a little bit later on to encourage us in that sense of invitation, kind of continue this message, because I think the big idea, as we focus on communion now, I think the big idea that Jesus seems to be trying to clue us in on was that once you have tasted mercy, once you've tasted that, don't you dare forget it. Don't forget it. How beautiful that moment was when somebody extended that to you that now you want to let other people experience. Because until you fully experience the weight of mercy, until you fully experience that, you'll never be able to extend the gift of mercy. And I think that's what Jesus is talking about. You see, Jesus is saying, please don't ever lose sight of the mercy that you have received. Question, as we come and enjoy this meal together here today, 
Have you experienced the weight of God's mercy? You see, mercy is expensive. It cost him everything. His name is Jesus. And that's how much mercy we needed. He gave up everything to pay a penalty for the sin that he did not commit. And that's what makes it the good news. Because he extends grace, he extends hope, and he extends mercy. But it's also one of the most challenging reminders that that's the kind of mercy that Jesus is encouraging each of us to offer other people. It's as if Jesus is asking, are you merciful? Let's pray. Father, as we come together over this meal together, it won't fill us physically but something special spiritually takes place each time we're thankful for this meal. And as we take this meal, this bread biscuit, it reminds us of the body of Jesus that was broken and beaten. It also reminds us of our own brokenness. But we could walk now in healing and wholeness, but we could also walk in mercy. As we take the cup, we take this juice, it reminds us that Jesus shed his blood for us so we don't have to walk in shame. We don't have to walk in condemnation. But we walk confidently in the forgiveness and mercy of Jesus. We're thankful for these next few moments as we stop, as we remember your son Jesus for the kindness that he brought to this world. Help us do the same. We pray this in Jesus' name. Look, uh, thanks so much for the opportunity to talk to you about this this morning, and um, just thank you, Steve, for just challenging us so much and, and opening up God's Word and just revealing the heart of God for people, for lost people. Fantastic. I want to do a little bit of a prequel, you know. If you're into Star Wars, you understand about prequels, you know. And what I want to do is, uh, Steve's spoken to us from Luke chapter 15, and I want to kind of go to Luke chapter 14 for a few moments, just to sort of set the scene a little bit. So Jesus is at a Pharisee's house with a whole bunch of Jewish lawyers sitting around, and he's having a meal with them on the Sabbath day. And the lawyers are watching pretty carefully to see if he slips up anywhere and offends their sense of how the law should go. You know, Jesus is pretty aware of this situation and he's a little provocative. After all, these guys can debate and they can think and they're um, lawyers and they're sort of having a bit of a go at him. So he puts it to them and in a kind of a provocative way, he says to the host who's invited him to lunch, when you give a luncheon or a dinner, don't invite your friends and relatives or rich neighbours. If you do they might invite you back and then you'd be repaid. Instead, invite the poor, the lame, the crippled, and they won't be able to repay you. But when you get to heaven, you'll be repaid. Interesting. Then one of the lawyers at the table pipes up and assuming, of course, that being a religious expert, He's definitely going to be sitting at that table in heaven when the time comes. He says this, Blessed is the person who will eat at the feast in the kingdom of God. 
somewhere else, other, in other places in Scripture, we understand that the kingdom of God actually is King Jesus, his people, what we would call the church today. So Jesus responds to this expert, um, perhaps a self-righteous expert, with this um, story from Luke 14, this parable. And Jesus says, a certain man was preparing a great banquet, invited many guests. At the time of the banquet, he sent his servant to tell those who had been invited, come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said, I've bought a field, a reed investment property, and I must go and see it, please excuse me. And another said, I've bought five yoke of oxen, read new car and I'm on my way to try them out please excuse me still another said I just got married so I can't come my relationships my personal relationships are more important than honoring the invitation from you so the servant came back and he reported this to the master then the owner of the house became angry And he ordered his servant, go out quickly into the streets and alleys of the town and bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind and the lame. Sir, the servant said, what you have ordered has been done, but there's still room. Then the master told his servant, go out to the roads and the country lanes and compel them to come in so that my house will be full. I tell you, not one of those who are invited, that's the initially invited, will get a taste of my banquet. Now, there's quite a few characters in this little um, parable. First of all, let's um, have, have a look at some of the main ones. I've got a little bit of help here, and you'll be very glad to know that I had my wife help me with this, so you don't have to put up with doctor's writing. The master, clearly that's God. And then we have the initial guests. These are the religious leaders the religious elite, the very people that he was having the meal with. So you can understand that this story is pretty provocative in that setting. The next guests were those that were in need, in particular those who had physical disabilities and needs. And then the final guests were anyone else a servant could find. So these are the main characters in the story, but there's another character that's not really been addressed And often when this parable is studied and looked at and read about and talked about, this particular character gets left out. And I want to take a particular look at this character today. You see, the main idea of the parable is that people who assume that because of the good things they do, because of the following of the detail of the law that they would simply, because they were religious, be acceptable to God. But it's a self-righteous, as Steve explained to us, a self-righteous approach, rather than trusting in God to provide need, to, to provide for the need of the person. The person that we, the character we haven't really discussed and often gets missed in this story is the servant. I wonder who the servant is. 
I love how practical God's Word is. And um, right now we're going to um, just pull some of the practical things out of this um, parable that Jesus has um, taught us. But we're going to do it from the perspective of looking at the servant. We're going to take a bit of a look at the character and action of the servant in this parable. And there's a number of things that um, we can note about it, and I've read, them through, read the parable through very quickly. We don't have a lot of time today, so I'm going to ask you to spend some time this week reading this over again, Luke chapter 14, and then, of course, go on and read Luke chapter 15, as, um, as uh, Steve has unfolded for us already. But, you know, there were some character and action aspects of this servant that are quite remarkable. The servant understood the master's heart. The master wanted the room full. He wanted every seat taken. And he wasn't going to be satisfied. The master loved people and wanted them in the room. The full house. The servant, understanding the master's heart, went out and invited. The servant took initiative. You'll notice the way that parable um, reads when you look at it a bit closer, that the servant had actually anticipated the fact that uh, when people rejected the master's invitation, he would immediately go on and invite somebody else anyway because he knew the master's heart was that the house had to be full. The servant reminded people who'd already been invited. It's interesting, isn't it? The servant particularly made a point under the orders of the master to invite those who had need in their life. This is Jesus prioritising the needy in the community and contrasting their attitude to the master with the religious elite's attitude to the master. The servant accepted orders from the master and got on with the job. The servant even went as far as to go out of town to the country roads and neighbouring areas to try to make sure that the house was full. There are some other things that are a little bit more subtle as you read this passage. The servant just didn't invite those that were in need, the lame, the crippled, the blind. He actually was instructed by the master to bring them, to help them get there not just invite them to the banquet, but to help them get there. The other thing that may slip past when you read this is that the master was concerned that these invitations should be compelling and the word compel them to come is even included in this. The aim of the servant was to fill the house. So today we're talking about growing hope, Growing invitations and growing mercy. We've learned about growing mercy today. An outflow of understanding the mercy that God has shown us, that Jesus has shown us, is to be willing to be like the servant under the master's orders, inviting people to come and participate in the very mercy that has been shown to us. And that's what we're going to be talking about. Growing invitations is the action that flows out of an understanding of growing hope and growing mercy.
Well, you might have noticed if you've been around Door of Hope for a while that we did a bit of furniture rearranging. And this happened about a bit over 12 months or so ago. And we used to have um, the auditorium set up in such a way that there were quite long rows and you had to kind of wriggle in and so on, but we broke it up into sections. You'll notice that there's actually a central corridor that goes left to right through here now, and the actual auditorium is broken up into eight segments. Now, we've been watching you. I've been watching you in particular. You know that about 80% of you sit in exactly the same segment of the auditorium every week when you come along to Door of Hope? <laughs> You're creatures of habit. And we're going to take advantage of you <laughs> in this respect. What we've decided to do, because, you know, if you get serious about inviting people in the Australian culture, you're going to experience a couple of things. You're going to experience a little bit of nervousness because, you see, our culture isn't very accepting of the idea of coming to church. And you're going to be aware that there's risk involved in extending an invitation to come along to church. And sometimes this awareness can create fear and even sometimes fear of rejection. You know, um, there's all kinds of things said about the Australian culture, the tall poppy syndrome and all that kind of stuff, but essentially we like to be part of the group and we don't like to stand out too much from the group. And when we extend an invitation to somebody to come to church, especially if that person is in our group, there's a risk they might say no, which would then cause us to stand out a little bit from our group and feel a little bit uncomfortable. As Steve has already said, comfort is not our friend. It stops us doing the things that the Master is challenging us to do. We've got to do something about this. So to help us, we're going to have eight teams in this room. Have a look around in your section of the auditorium. We're going to call that your home base and check out who's on your team. 80% of the time, they'll be the same people until we start inviting a bunch more. And the idea is we need encouragement to overcome these challenges in our culture. We're going to appoint home base leaders. We're going to get an alpha um, person in every home base so that there's an immediate point of connection for somebody who wants to take that next step who might be a person newly invited along. We're going to encourage you to try to fill every seat in your section by being intentional about inviting whoever will come. If every single person who came to Door of Hope each week invited one person per week, extended one invitation per week, whether it was accepted or not is not the issue. If you extend the invitation, one invitation per week, we will be generating 500 invitations a week by the time we get to the end of 2020. And that's one of the strategies under our goal for growing invitations. Now, we'll even tolerate a little bit of friendly rivalry <laughs> between home bases to see who can fill up their seats the fastest. However, no stealing people from the other team. You know. <laughs> All right. One of the things that we're aware of is that Australians aren't that good at having a conversation. I think we've all been there. Let me explain. 
Nice day today. Yeah. It was raining yesterday. Yeah. Nice to see you. We really got to do better. I mean, we just don't want weird invitations like, yeah. Want to come to church? No. Good. (laughs) We want to try to create rich conversations. So we're going to help you. We're going to create some training opportunities in your areas to help you have better quality conversations with people to actually take an interest in somebody and find out about them. It's actually quite simple, but we're not very good at it as a nation. And in the context of exploring what's going on in somebody's life and finding out about them and showing genuine interest in them, finding out their name and using their name, what happens in the context of those richer conversations that aren't just about the weather is that we see the opportunity for cues that are appropriate to invite. And to make it easy for you to remember, we've given it a a weird name, the not cues. The not cues. These are things that pop up in conversation very, very regularly and they're easy opportunities to invite somebody to come along to church. And they go like this, there are three of them. So you're having this richer conversation than the one about the weather And somebody says in the context of that conversation that things are not going well for them in some way. Perhaps they've had an illness recently. Perhaps they've lost their job. Perhaps um, there's been difficulty of some sort and they share that in the context of the conversation. There's an immediate reminder for you to go click. Okay, I remember. I remember the not cues. All right. well, we've got some people who can really help with that kind of stuff at Door of Hope. Would you like to come along to church on Sunday with me and I could introduce you to some people? There's a much more natural opportunity to extend an invitation in that context. Another cue that comes up frequently in rich conversations is when somebody explains that they weren't prepared, they were not prepared for something that happened in their life. So it might have been that they, something simple like there was a car accident and they weren't prepared for it, it was sudden and unexpected. Or maybe they uh, suddenly um, are explaining to you that they were studying but they failed an exam and they weren't prepared for it and it's had implications in terms of the direction of their study and what they're doing next. So when that comes up in conversation, there's an opportunity for you to say, come along to Door of Hope. There's people there who really care and they'll be supportive and helpful of you. And then finally, the final not cue is, I'm not from around here. So you're having a conversation with somebody and they're new to the area. What a great opportunity to say to them, come to Door of Hope, there's a fantastic community here. You can be part of my home base, there's some great people there and we'll really make you feel welcome. You see, extending an invitation is not that difficult if you've got some practical help and training to overcome some of the things that tend to hold us back. You know, an enthusiastic inviter carries the heart of the master. 
It's the master's heart that this place should be full of people who are growing in their relationship with him. There are thousands of people who are lost. There are thousands of lost sheep, lost coins, lost sons in our city. And the master would love us to be great servants, be out there under his orders, extending those invitations and inviting people to come into relationship with him. Yes, those invitations might be rejected, but at the end of the day, that rejection is of the master, not of the servant. Let's be faithful servants. We're in this Game On series, and this is the last um, message in this series. As you came in through the door, you would have been given a little bit of paper like this, different colours. There's pencils in front of you. In a moment, I'm going to pray. I'm going to ask you to write these words, if you're willing, to write these words on the piece of paper and also names that God brings to your mind of people you could invite. If you're willing, write, I'll serve you, Jesus, game on on that piece of paper while I'm praying. I'll serve you, Jesus. Game on. I'll serve you, Jesus. Game on. And then leave some space at the bottom or on the back to write some names of people that he might prompt you with as we pray. And then during this last song while the band's playing, there'll be opportunity for you to come up and peg those pieces of paper. There's pegs there onto our wire racks here along with the prayer um, notes where people have listed names from last week of people that they're praying for. So let's uh, do that now. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you are absolutely full of mercy. Thank you that you've rescued a sinner like me, like us. Your mercy is incredible. Jesus, we're so grateful for your rescue plan, the opportunity to be restored to relationship with God the Father because of what you've done for us. King Jesus, would we be good servants of yours? Speak to us, encourage us, empower us by your Holy Spirit to get out of the comfort zone and become the radically inviting community that you've asked us and challenged us through your word to be. Help us to constantly remember your mercy and to spread that mercy wherever we, we have opportunity. Father, help us not to be afraid of being weird, but to learn how to have a rich conversation and extend an appropriate invitation. And help us not to give up if we get a few rejections, but just like your servant described in the parable we've studied today, Turn around and invite somebody else. Father, at the end of the day, you've called us to serve you. We're under your orders and we ask that you would give us the courage and the strength we need by the power of your spirit. In Jesus' name.